0: is a good God, and I want to say thank you to everyone that has come for the meeting today. The Lord bless you. The Lord increase you. May the Lord continue to honor his word in your life. If you are joining us live uh, from outside uh, our area here, God bless you. You are very welcome. If you are also watching this later on on Facebook, I want to say the Lord himself will continue to reach you where you are. The word of God is always active. So whether you are listening to this later on today, later on tomorrow, later on next month, later on next year, later on 10 years' time, till Jesus tarries to come, it continues to be fresh. So you are very welcome, and we want to say God bless you. Thank you to everyone who uh, has uh, ministered to us today. I want to appreciate God for your lives, and I pray that the increase of the anointing will continue to be your portion in the name of Jesus. By the special grace and mercies of God, about eight weeks ago, we started a series on the uniqueness of Christ. Very awesome. Very awesome. God has helped us through this session, basically looking through it from the book of Hebrews. Uh, I believe you know that the uniqueness of Christ is not confined to the book of Hebrews alone, but we are focusing on the book of Hebrews just for the presentation and the fact that it was a book written to a people who were trying to understand their newfound faith in Christ, and as a matter of fact, everything God spoke to, to them through the writer of Hebrews, we are mighty benefactors today because we can also relate to it, and so we started with the supremacy of Christ and looking at the perfect high priest of Christ, of Christ being the perfect high priest, then we looked at the new and better covenant in Christ, and then last week and the week before, we looked at the great heritage of faith we have in Christ, which, we, which took us in a journey last week and the upper week through the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And as I said, and I have said over and over again, these are just things that are nuggets that God wants us to pick up from now. These, these writings are so powerful. What we're going to look at today on living faithfully in Christ or faithful Christian living is one that, again, can take us a lot of weeks to explore. And I want to do my utmost best to touch on the key things between Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verse 1, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 19. Very many verses in the course of the service you heard earlier on. Pastor Moses read our scripture reading for today. We read it Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 24, and then we read the last two verses of Hebrews 12, Those are verses 28 and 29. Now, I will go through those things again just to reemphasize what God wants to speak to us concerning faithful Christian living or living faithfully in Christ. The journey so far has been that the children of Israel, uh, the, that, that the Hebrews that were, that, that were receiving this text directly, were told of how all these important things about Christ makes him unique. So that they understand that it was not just a practice, they were just, you know, a form of what they had in the Old Testament per se, but that this was a new and a better covenant and that they were expected to live by faith in it. Now, last week and the week before, there was a big uh, 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 list of so many people that were given to them as examples of people of faith that they were asked to emulate, And so we're looking at this today, and I want to say that by the grace of God, as we want to continue, we are now looking in the last couple of chapters, we now start to task them about how they need to conduct themselves. You've seen what Christ did, and how he has worked in the life of others, now he's saying to us, this is how you should conduct yourself. This is what is expected of you and I. And so as we start today, we are reading From Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to just take us through six key points between Hebrews chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 13 that God will help us to see that are important aspects of faithful Christian living. And so I want to start from Hebrews chapter 12, from verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, from verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, Despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's go back to verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, we also are surrounded, let us lay aside the sin and run. Let us run. So, the first thing I'd like to emphasize here is that we must never forget that our faith journey is a race. Jesus is our focus, He is our coach. He is the one that inspires. He is the one that started the race with us. He is the one that will complete it for us. But we must understand that we are in a race. You see, the knowledge of you being in a race changes. It should inform how you live your day to day. No one who is in a race conducts themselves like the spectators. No one who is in a race conducts themselves like those who are uh, just, you know, doing things on the field. Maybe other officials of, of, of keeping the track or keeping the time. No one, everyone on the track who is on that race is very focused, whether it's a race of defeat or a race of motorcycles or a race of cars, whatever kind of race, they are focused on their lane with one sole purpose to win, to get to whatever the end point is and win. The Bible says, we also, if you look at those verses, those first few words in the verse of one, it says, therefore, we also, if you look at it, you will see that it's a continuation of the people who were giving us examples in Hebrews 11 that we looked at last week and the week before, and how they ran their race. And he ended up by telling us that even though these people did not see the promise of Christ, They inherited the promises that were given to them. They subdued mountains. They pulled down walls of Jericho as it was promised to them. They received their Isaac. They did things. They obtained some promises, but they didn't receive the promise of Jesus Christ, which you and I have run, which you and I have been privileged to receive. He said, therefore... We also, since we are now surrounded by these people who are the great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. It's very important. You see, understanding that we have a cloud of witnesses in the likes of Elijah, in the likes of David, in the likes of Samuel, in the likes of Samson, the spirit of these just men made perfect goes a long way. And as we all know, it is very important for us to, to recognize that every one of us is being cheered on we are being encouraged, we are being inspired, we are being uh, energized. How? Every time we look at the Word of God, we we gain a perspective of their lives that we can learn from so that we don't repeat their errors. The purpose of mentors is to help those that they are mentoring climb on their shoulders and to make sure that they don't repeat the mistakes that they've repeated. The purpose of mentors is not just to clap for the people alone and to just keep telling them they can do it. Part of what mentors do, what a good mentor will always do is to tell not just what the mentee should be doing, but what much more what the mentee should not do. Every little area of life that I have passed through certain things and I find young people, either my own biological children or spiritual children or people who in one way or the other would need a little bit of my wisdom, I tell Don't waste time in telling them what not to do, what is not worth it, what is a waste of time. If you can hear the voice of Samson today, he will tell you, my dear brother, you are strong, you are endowed by God, you are well built, but it is not for you to waste it on frivolous living. If you can hear the voice of David today, David will say to you, you are beloved, you are loved, you are you are made a fighter, you have been given a lot of virtues, but never be lax at any time because the devil can take advantage of your very weak moments. If you can hear the voice of as many that went ahead of us, like Noah, the great man of faith that received grace to build an ark, he will tell you, my son, my brother, you know what? God loves you and grace can make you do much. Grace can help you build ark. Grace can help you do things that you never imagine you can do. But don't joke with wine. Wine can make you a mocker. Wine can make you disgraced. Wine can put you down. Wine can put out your light. Don't joke with it. Don't toy around it. If you can hear his voice today, he will cheer you on and say, keep running. Keep running. Don't make my own mistake. These are the things we will hear. And you know something? It doesn't cost us anything to hear those things. We just need to go into the Word. And as you read their Bible, as you read their biography, as you read their stories in the Bible, the spirits of the just men will speak to you directly from their stories as interpreted by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says they are our great cloud of witnesses. So when we are running this race without that tool, we will repeat the same errors of the past. They say only foolish people re- repeat the same errors of history. If we learn history, we should not repeat the same errors of history. It sounds so simple, but yet on a daily basis, millions of people worldwide are repeating the errors of history. I am the third child uh, of of three siblings. By the grace of God, we were four. I didn't meet the fourth person. Our second born, he was born and lived for a few months and died before before my sister was born and before I was born. But ultimately, we were left, three of us growing up, and today we are only two left, myself and my sister. But my elder brother, who went to be with the Lord about five years ago, he, he was eight years older than me, and my sister is four years older than me. I was only seven years old one day, and the whole house was all over the place. They, my elder brother had some problems with, he was about 15, 16 that time. He had some problems with my dad, and my elder sister, who was about uh, 11 years old that time, had some problems with my mom, and all over the place, they were. everybody was on there, and I was sat down there. And I made up my mind as a seven-year-old. I say, if I repeat the mistakes of these two, then I am the biggest fool here. Because I am just watching the show here. It's playing out before my eyes. I can see how, how wrongly they have conducted themselves in certain things. I learned from their good examples, but I saw some things in that age that they were doing that they were just wasting their time and our parents were really against it. And thank God they went through all that stage and all that. But I remember making that vow as a seven-year-old that I wouldn't repeat the same mistakes, otherwise I would be the biggest fool. And it helped me, it helped me. By the grace of God, it helped me to curtail my life and not repeat some of those things. I am not perfect, I'm walking towards perfection. But I learned from that simple illustration and that story of my own life that is the same thing with the heroes of faith in the Bible. Therefore, we are seeing that they are we are surrounded by this great, cloud of witnesses. So if you don't look at them, you will not know what to lay aside. We are saying lay aside. The Bible says lay aside. Every Go back to verse 1. The Bible says lay aside every sin and every weight, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So how do you know what to lay aside if you have not looked at some of the stories of those men and what they did not lay aside and almost made a mockery of their faith? This is how we use the cloud of witnesses. The Bible says, let us lay aside. And then we can run. If you see athletes, if you see any, any racer now, everything they use, whether it is the gown, they wear the garments, they wear their, their, their tracksuits, or the cars they drive, or the bikes, everything is made slicker. Everything is made more aerodynamic. Everything is made lighter. The lighter they can design it, the more efficient it becomes. I saw some pictures of some, of some cars that our parents and grandparents used in the, in the 50s and the 60s. And I said, if people call some cars gas guzzlers these days, they should have called those ones gas grobers. <laughs> the, the, the front was flat. That in itself, it means that you are spending twice the effort. The, the fact that you have put a, a, a rectangular front. In today's science, we understand that. At that time, they didn't know. It was just to get the thing moving. Flat front. Resisting wind, it makes it more difficult for the car, so it's, it's using more energy to have to move forward. And that is why cars today are, are made, designed in such a way that they are aerodynamic. They can, they can move well. They are like, you know, they have the bodies like akin to planes. They can move well and move quicker. So you use less effort and things to move them. This is the same way it is in a race. If you carry so many things in this Christian race, you'll be limited. If as a Christian, you are still holding on to bitterness, holding on to anger, holding on to malice, holding on to fornication, lust, holding on to lies, trickery, all the things that are weights and those that are actual sins because there are two different things. Sins are those things that are completely forbidden by God and weights are things that are not necessarily forbidden but they are also heavy on your race. For example, too much food. It's not completely forbidden to eat food but if you eat food too much every time, how can you fast? How can you pray? If you are given to too much sleep, how can you be sharp and profitable in the times of productivity? If you are given to too many things, too many too many uh, frivolities, always wanting to, to just please the flesh, please the flesh, party, uh, barbecue today. And those things are not bad, but if they are overindulged in, they become weights. Because you cannot be an effective prayer person that carries all those things along. So you must know the balance so that you can run your race very well. The Bible says we should run it with endurance. We talked about endurance last week, so I wouldn't want to take too much time on that. So it is important. He said we must keep looking unto Jesus, verse 2, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and he despised the shame and has sat down on the right hand of God. This is important because if we don't look at Jesus, we will give up. I always say, if they spat on Jesus, why should I be worried if somebody spits on me? I'm not asking for it. But if because of the sake of this kingdom, somebody wants to spit on me, so be it. They've done it. They did it to Jesus. If they denied him, why should I cry if somebody denied me? If they betrayed him, why should I cry if somebody betrays me? Why should I cry? Why should I feel it? The Bible says I should be looking unto Jesus. If they nailed him to the cross why should I worry if somebody nails me to the cross? If they did any of those things to him, why should I worry if they do it to me? He himself said, they did it to him, they will do it to you. They hated me, they will hate you. So we must understand that if we want to run effectively, we are not people who go all out bare-chested and walk foolishly because we say we are Christians and we say anything should be thrown at us or people should treat us anyhow. That's foolishness. That's not what I'm talking about. The Bible says we should be gentle as doves and wise as a serpent. I was laughing with my wife just coming before the service today. She was playing an audio Bible verse and it was in that place where the Bible says they wanted to push him over a cliff. I say the whole cliff. <laughs> how did they want to push him over a cliff and he walked through their midst because that was not yet his time and that's not how he was to die. If he let them push him there, he would die, but that's not the kind of death he came for. <laughs> so we're not saying be foolish and be everything but you know something when it was time for him to die and it was the right thing to do he let himself kneel to the cross for you and I but what I'm trying to say here is that nobody needs to die the death of a cross again because he has mattered. He, ha- he had sacrificed himself for us he has become our ultimate matter. but you know something Christians must understand that whatever they did to Jesus it should not be strange to us if they are doing it to us If people look at you like this on a Sunday and they say, Hosanna to the king who comes in the name of the Lord and on a Friday they shout, crucify him. Why are you surprised? Why are you saying, oh, people? They're just people. They're just people. They did it to your savior. They shouted, Hosanna to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Took off their own clothes. He did not ask them. They took off their own clothes. They put it on the floor. These same people, majority of them, on Friday, five days later, they say, crucify him. If that does not teach you about people. I don't know what else can teach you about people. We don't go around hating people or, or seeing people any less, but we should understand that if, if this was the feebleness of people revealed through the life of Jesus, then most of the time, the hurt we get from betrayal, the hurt we get from, from, from people's doubles, double tongues, double-tonguedness, and double-facedness, those kind of hurts that we get will become nothing to us. This is what we need to do so that you can run your race. The sin and the weight doesn't always include those things that I, we talked about earlier. Some of these things are the weights. Distraction, quickly distracted, quickly discouraged, quickly giving up. There are weights. You must overcome it. You must decide to say, I want to look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith indeed. And as I, I'm running the race, I want to endure like he did. So, number two, I must move very quickly because I won't touch touch the six things. Number two, we must understand and appreciate the discipline of God. This takes me to the great verses in verses 3 to 11, but I will just read a few from verse 5. But when you are reading this, please read the entire chapter so that you can get it. Let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 5. The Bible says, and you have... Forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Except you are not a child of God. Except you are not a true son of God. You would be enjoying rebukes. There are many times I want to do something, or I have already done it, and I hear his voice say, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have looked at that. You shouldn't have imagined that. I will hear him. That's his rebuke. And I'll say, Lord, I'm sorry. I know some of you are so holy and perfect that he always tells you, well done, well done, well done. (laughs) Unless you want to lie, you will keep hearing his voice saying, son, that's not for you. That's not the place to go. I told you just late last year, when we were, were, there there, there was a surprise party thrown for my my wife when she was having her great birthday in November last year, and we were, there was no social distancing then, so we were having a meal in our outreach hall downstairs, all uh, put together by the brethren and we were really rejoicing. And at a point, I saw some of our sisters who were cooking and serving the food, and it was such a lovely sight. And some of my friends from other places from many years were invited, so they came around and all that. And in the innocence of my heart, just that beautiful sight, I wanted to go there and say, Give me a, 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 a photo shot here and just get my picture. I just wanted it. I liked it. I liked what I was seeing. No, no sinister motive. As I was about to get up, the Holy Spirit said to me, You know, that's your pride. I said, Lord. say, Yeah, that's your pride. So I sat down and continued my pounded yam very quietly. <laughs> Nobody, nobody, you should not be discouraged. If I ignore it and say, "Ha, what is it? I'm just going to take a picture. That can make the Holy Spirit grieved and everything else we were doing that day and maybe even other consequences would have come from it. We need to be careful. He said, don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Verse six says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son Whom he receives. Verse 7 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And this brings me to the topical issue of the day, which is Happy Father's Day. We are truly grateful to God for fathers in the house. We have great fathers by the grace of God in this ministry, and we are thankful to God for them. I want to thank God for all the fathers in the world. But I want to charge fathers today that the Bible says every father must learn how to chasten a son. Not abuse a son. Not violate a son. Not oppress a son. The word chasten means correct in love. Making sure that they don't walk into error. Whatever it takes in love, in gentleness, in patience. It's a very compound word. He said he loves you. And I. Now, when he uses son, there is not just talking about the male gender, I believe we know, as children of God, we are all sons of God. So he loves you and I. And that is why he said, Who is that, which son is there in whom a father does not chasten? We must understand that on a day like this, we are celebrating the fathers of our faith and we are celebrating our biological fathers, but we must also understand. That there is a duty placed on fathers. Fathers, I want to charge you all over the world today. God bless you. Thank God for your lives. But we have a duty. We have a duty to raise a generation after us that will be a chastened people. A people loved by God. A people who have a heart for God. A people who, who can see our examples and want to be like it. A people that can can become the the change makers. The people that will attain 10 times what we didn't attain. By the grace of God, some of us are going further than our earthly fathers have gone today. And we are thankful we are still going more. But we want our children to go even much more than we've ever done. However, God wants to lead them in that way. You see, fatherhood is not just about the ability to produce children. That is what makes you a man. Every man can produce children by the grace of God. But the reality is that fatherhood is the ability to bring forth those children, spiritually or biologically, and be a good example to them and make them better than you have ever been in your life. That is true fatherhood. And so on this Father's Day, I want to thank God for all our fathers and I want to challenge us some more. Let's keep stepping up the game. Let's keep looking unto Jesus so that we can also receive the chastening of the father and be blessed by him. The Bible says in verse 9, for we have had fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the fathers of the spirits and live? I want to thank God for my own biological father. He's 85 years old. I was privileged to speak with him uh, yesterday in the morning, and uh, I was driving somewhere, and uh, I had the opportunity, and we, we talked for some time. He's 85 years old. He's—he's. He's, thank God for him. He's not as mobile as he used to be, but he's still very sound in his mind. Very, very sound. Very sound to the glory of God. And he was asking me a lot of questions. How is this person? How is that? Of course, people in the family. How is your wife? How is this child? How is this one? He knows everyone. He asks every time. And he was asking all those questions. I was saying, the, and then at the point he said, I hope you are not angry or annoyed with me that I'm asking you this. I said, Father, how can I be? Dad, how can I be? How can I be? You've always been there for me. He said, it's because I'm praying for you. He asked after the church many times. He said, because I'm praying for you. Now he was, at a time I was a baby in his hand, he used to chasten me. He used to correct me. He used to make sure that I don't fall into error. He used to discipline me in love. At a point. Today he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't interfere with my life as such anymore. I do what I want to do. But he's still there praying. That is a father. That is a father. It's a lifetime assignment. You don't continue chastening them and, and, and guiding them when they are people of, their, of themselves. You should have done that before. But after they even leave you, you must continue to guide them. You must continue to pray for them. What I mean by guide is just give counsel. Oh, this is, this is what I know about this thing, but you know, if you're convinced that that's how you want to do it, I'll pray for you. And I pray God gives you wisdom. That's counsel. When I was about to pick a wife, I brought somebody home. I trusted my father. I loved him to the point where I learned a lot of things from him. He's not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but I learned a lot of things from him. So when I was getting to the age of late teens, early 20s, he saw that I wanted to marry and settle down quickly, which was good, and he encouraged me. So I said to him, I said, anybody I want to marry, don't worry, I'll bring them home. And he said, that's fine. So I brought home one lady like that one time, and he called me in the middle of the night, and uh, he said to me, he said, son, that's not your wife. I said, but dad, this, you need to see this lady. She can sing, and she's going to compliment my ministry. <laughs> she said, well, he said, well, I don't know much to say, but this is all I can say to you. That is not your wife. But you go pray. Don't worry. You go pray. God will sort things out. It was not up to two months after that 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 lady sang herself out of my life. I was looking all over the place. for well, She just vanished. <laughs> Hallelujah. And the day, the day I took this my wife about 27 years ago now that I took this my wife home to him. He called me again in the middle of the night. He said, "Son, congratulations. You have found yourself a wife." And 25 years later, I'm still thankful for that great message from him. Am I saying I didn't have the wisdom myself to choose a wife for myself? No. By the grace of God I do, I had the Holy Ghost, I had God, and God will fight for me. But because there was a father who had proved that he was a good father, I could trust him. I could trust his judgment. And I thank God I have no regrets. We must understand that it is part of our love for our coming generation to keep chastening, to keep guiding, to keep praying for them. He now said in verse 9, he said, for who? If, if now no chastening, sorry, go to, back to verse 9, verse 10. Verse 10. Now he said, for indeed, thank you, for a few days they chastened us. It seems best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. He said, if these fathers, we respected them, how much more the one who can give us life the spirits, and so that we can live. He said for our fathers for a few days, just a few years of our lives, they chastened us as seemed best to them, but he now is doing it for our profit perpetually so that we may be partakers of his holiness. We must be a people who are willing to enjoy the chastening. Verse 11 is very important. Wherever you are, read it to yourself. You don't have to put on your mic, but read it. He said, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Mm-mm. But painful, whether it is a father, father, biological father or the heavenly father, it can be painful for the moment. Nevertheless, he said, afterward, a little bit later, you will see the benefit. He said, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hey, I ask myself many times if I had not gone through a school of ministry, not in the four walls of a school called the school of ministry, but working with people in different ministries for over 20 years before coming into this role, I ask myself many times, what would I have been doing today? Where would I have had the discipline? Where would I have had the, the strength to withhold certain things, to carry certain things, to keep running in certain ways? But that time, Those times it was looking like chastening. You have heard my story many times. When I was 10 years old, my father was in Greeley, Colorado in the USA. I was the only black child in a school of 300. It was one of the most horrible moments of my life. This was 1978, 79, 1980. The world was a much darker place. All these things you are saying about now, you don't know what it looked like then. You can't imagine. 40 years ago, it was horrible. Horrible. People will come and touch my hair. To see if it was real or it will fall off. People will come and rub my skin. I'm talking about my fellow classmates. They will come and rub my skin and, and look at their hand to see if, if, if my hand will peel off on their, on, their, on their own skin. They have not seen a person like that. They saw them only on television, at least in that state. So I was looking strange to them. Some will come and ask me that "Do we have houses in Africa?" Because what they knew about Africa was a man called Tarzan, a comic character called Tarzan, who lives in trees. And by the way, Tarzan was a white man, so I always got that confused. Well, how would they think I'm like Tarzan anyway? Tarzan was a white man living in the jungles of, of whatever. <laughs> Anyway, they did all those things to me. They wouldn't sit next to me on a school bus. They wouldn't do things with me. For the first few weeks, I went back home. I said to my father, Dad, it is too hard. I need to go. I can't stay. And my father said, do you want to go back to Nigeria? My father was very pragmatic. He said, I'm here to study. You are here with me. If you want to go back to Nigeria, you can. I'll send you to your uncles and you'll be there. I said, no, I'm not going back anyway. I said, then, son, sorry, we're going to pray, but you've got to just face it. So I braced myself up. And I began by the grace of God and the wisdom of God. I started building confidence, never fighting or confronting anybody, always putting on a smile until God used a man called Coach Clark to just settle the thing by putting putting me into a football game that was played in the school. And then I became a friend of everybody because I could play football very well at that time, not like nowadays. And God helped me. With that one incident, I now became everybody wanted to be my friend and all that. God just turned things like overnight. Truly, I have been a benefactor of many overnight turnarounds in my life. I can go on and on in many things, but I'll spare that today. But you know something? That experience 40 years after is such such an asset in my life today. Today, I sit in a room with 20 people most of the time. I'm the only person with a different color. Many times we would have met and discussed the whole matters of the day for more than 20, 30 minutes before it even occurred to me. Just a crossing to say, oh, come on, think of it. I'm the only African here or I'm the only person here that is not white. It doesn't mean anything anymore because God had taken me through a school. Because he knows my today. He took me through a school that at that time looked like pain. But he knows that, son, for me to use your life to do what I want it to do, I need you to quickly overcome whatever will be a stigmatization of any attempt for you to see racism. And I thank God for that experience. Yours may not have to be that extreme. It may be that God is telling you something about your life today. You are looking at it as a chastening. You are saying, "Lord, I can see the dream is much bigger than this. I can see that my husband will be more than this. I can see that my wife will be more than this, but where we are today doesn't look it. It's a chastening. Take time, keep praying and keep being patient. Everything that God is doing, God is not crazy. Everything that he's doing in your life today is to prepare you for a tomorrow. Pass the test, you will walk into your tomorrow. Pass the test, you will walk into your dream tomorrow. You need to pass the test today so that you can walk into your dream tomorrow. It may not seem joyful at present. It may be painful. But he knows that afterward, it will read the fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Many people don't want to be trained anymore. They just want to be given a title. Many people just want to be given a certificate. Even in our professional circles, we don't just get certificates. They don't just, in my profession, they don't just call you a chartered engineer because you they like your face. You must have been trained. You must have passed exams. You must have demonstrated that you can take. Because if they call you that thing and they give you the responsibility of taking decisions, you will kill people if you are not properly trained. This is the way it is. Because if you design something that is meant to carry 50 people and 50 people go on it and it collapses, it's a potential of killing 50 people. That's why we see in some countries buildings and things collapsing all over the place because the people building it have not been trained, properly trained. They thought they saw what they can do and copy it, but it's not by copying. It's not by copying. If you want to walk in the fullness of your destiny, you must endure chastening by God. Let God take you through a school like he took David. Let God take you through a school like he took Joseph. Let God take you through a school like he took Moses. I've told you that the 40 years Moses spent in the wilderness was to calm him down. If not, if, he, if that Moses that strangulated that one person in Egypt, if that one was to lead people out, before they got to the promised land, every day he would be killing one, one person. <laughs> he would be killing one, 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 until they get to the promised land. So God knew that this is my son. He needs to be trained. Let me go and put him with sheep. Let me put him with, with, with goats. Let me put him with animals that will teach him how to contain himself when he's angry. that's by the side. But training helps us to take more of the fruit of righteousness. Hallelujah. Number three, we must keep our spiritual vitality. We must keep it. It is your responsibility to keep your spiritual vitality and it is our collective responsibility to keep it individually and corporately. So we must keep our spiritual vitality. This is the advice he gave in Hebrews 12, verse 12. Hebrews 12, verse 12. It says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Verse 13 says, and then make straight paths and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. I want to quickly talk about that. When the Bible talks about hands, And it talks about feet. You need to look at the various contexts of how they were used. Apart from just understanding hands in the physical, feet in the the physical. Now we know that as members of the body of Christ, we are like a body, real body. Christ is our head and all of us are just like various parts of the body, fitted together. We know that so corporately we are a body. So corporately, there is an analogy of that whereby you are the hand, I am the the, the side, you are the feet. This one is the, is the is the is the is the ear. This one is the nose. But the real head and everything that is that is running the body is Christ Himself. So we can look at how we understand what do we need. He said in verse twelve, he said there. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. In the book of Psalms, verse. Chapter 18, verse 34, the Bible says he teaches my hands to war. And he makes me to, by them, take a bow of bronze and break it. That's Psalm 18, verse 34. There's also 2 Samuel, chapter 22, verse 35. We must understand that God needs to teach our hands to war. What does this mean? If you look at Ephesians 6, the Bible talks from verse 13 to verse 18, talks about uh, the, our our the, the our armor of God, the whole armor of God that he said we should take on. With the hands, we do two things. We hold the shield of faith and we hold the sword of the Spirit. The shield of faith is what keeps us from the fairy darts of the enemy. That's what the Bible says. The sword of the Spirit is what the only attacking weapon, that is the launching of the Word of God, the use of the Word of God against every kind of opposition that God, things that are of the demonic realm that we need to dismantle, things that are orchestrated by evil that God has given us authority to cast out, we use the sword of the Spirit and then we use the shield of faith. So your hands have to be trained to know how to handle those things. But I read also in Nehemiah, and this is what I want you to learn from this because I know you know about the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. But the Bible says, at a time when Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, we know his story very well. You can read it from Nehemiah 1 right through to 8, but I want to quickly tell you about when they had finished building the wall in verse chapter 4, and the enemy was trying to ridicule them through Sambalat and Tobiah. And they made war against them. And people, Nehemiah had to arrange warriors and everything, but the wall building was going on. And I found in verse 17, we won't turn to it, but you can read it later on. In 4:17. the Bible says that in these people were building one hand with construction. They were doing the construction. Another hand, they were using it as a weapon of war. Believe me, you need a spiritual understanding of that. Because normally, if you are building something, you need two hands. If you're a carpenter, you need two hands to hold something down and use. You need two hands to hold a saw. You need two hands to put, lay bricks. You need two hands. So how on earth did these people have one hand with a weapon and another hand with the, wep- uh, the, the tool for construction by God's revelation, God's inspiration? And this is what I want you to understand. Where you walk and the things you do, you must understand that there is a need for you to trust God to make you know how to hold the weapon of construction in quote That is your, your, your professional calling. How to understand it. How to be able to be doing it and doing it well. And then how to at the same time have the word of God with you alongside. Steadily. Steadily. So that when you are building, you are building well. But at the same time when the enemy is trying to accuse you like he accused them when they were building the walls of Jerusalem. You can use the weapon of war which we know from Ephesians 6 is the sword of the spirit. When a believer goes to work and comes every day and is worried, it means you are not understanding the balance. There is a balance. Don't use your two hands to hold the weapon of construction only. You are a child of God. You can use one hand to hold the word of God, your weapon of warfare. You can use the other hand to hold the weapon of your construction or your trade, your tool, your business. Those things that you must do. That is the way it works for a believer. The two hands is, the Bible says, he teaches my hands to war. That's why the Bible says, therefore, Hebrews 12, 12, strengthen the hands which hang down. If it is your weapon of warfare that is hanging down, your prayer life, your intercession, your ability to fellowship, your ability to join the saints and and be potent and active in spirituality and you are trying to do with one hand your business and the things or you are using your two hands actually to do that and you are neglecting the one you will find yourself, you may find yourself struggling unnecessarily. And if all you do is pray, 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 and you put down your weapon of construction, you put down your tools of construction, you don't care about developing yourself, you don't care about doing the things that you should do to advance yourself, researching, knowing how to develop yourself, moving from level to level in that career, and you are just praying, 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 because that is another thing believers do. They just pray and use anointing oil and ask the next prophet, pray for me, prophesy to my life. That one say you will be great. You say, aha, I got my prophecy today. He goes to work next tomorrow. He's still not doing well. You are wasting your time. And it is a shame to the body of Christ, to be quite frank. You must do the two. Know your work. Work hard to know your work. At the same time, never let go of your spiritual weapon of warfare. You can read that in Nehemiah chapter 4. The whole chapter, but verse 17 and 18 is what I've just given you a quick overview. The Bible says in verse 18, they had the spear to their side. They had the spear to their side. So they were constructing, but at the same time, they can always pull out the spear, which we know is the sword of the Spirit. Stop letting the enemy cheat you, because you have a lot to do for the body of Christ. The Bible says also, as part of the things that you need to do, verse 14, to keep the spiritual vitality, verse 14, the Bible says, Pursue peace. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm just trying to touch all these things. You must be in the body of Christ. You must be a peacemaker. Where you are, you must be a peacemaker. In your marriage, you must be a peacemaker. Why do you always like to have to win your husband in an argument? Why do you always like to have to win your wife? She's your spouse. She's your wife. Why must you win? Why must you win, sister? Why do you think you have to win? There is no prize for winning arguments. There's no pride, especially if what you are talking about is not something that is fundamentally flawed. If it's just a perspective of of the same, you want to paint the house, somebody say red, the other one say blue, and then you must fight because the red is what one wants. That's foolishness. They are both colors. And believe me, if a, a third party visits your house... They may not even like red or blue anyway. <laughs> the people you think you want to impress, they may be for green. <laughs> and you, have, you want to kill your spouse over it. Of course, there are some fundamental things that I know I can't just put that trivial, but whatever way, do it in love. Be at peace. The person who pursues peace is the one who is always seeking to humble themselves. Anytime somebody tells me that I did something to them and I, I call them, I don't waste time, except they don't tell me. I call them, I don't waste time, I say, what what is it you said I did? If they said this, 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 in all honesty, I am very quick to say I'm sorry. Even if they've misunderstood me, I'll say I'm sorry, I didn't understand it that way, but this is what I meant to do, but I am sorry if it offended you. Now, after I say that, I can't do anything more. If you want to be happy, fine, if you don't want to be happy, there's nothing I can do. I find that as a pastor, when people want to leave church and they, they you call them for talks, and at times they don't want to talk to you. They, 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 they're they angry at you, angry at other people, angry, and you don't know what it is, and you're trying to ask. You're saying, what is it, what is it? Before, in my earlier days of ministry life, I used to worry. I would say, oh, no, maybe it's something I did so bad, and uh, I shouldn't let this person suffer the consequences. But you know something? God has delivered me from that a long time. The moment I say to a person, I am sorry God bless you, I don't want it to be like this, I didn't mean it that way, or whatever, whatever. I take my rest. If they don't accept that, that is it. Because because not being guilty after that, or feeling bad after that is is the manipulation, which we will see in the next verse. Is the manipulation of the devil to try to hinder a person from making progress. So by all means, be a peacemaker. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Peacemaking is a good thing to do. And holiness, they must go together. You cannot have a walk of holiness without being a peacemaker. And if you are being a peacemaker and you are not living a holy life, you are you are doing something that is of of service to men here or not. I know people who are very good at making peace with people. Oh no no no! no. But they are not. They are not. They don't want to accept the simple gift of Jesus Christ. So they can't be holy according to biblical standards. The two must go together. The Bible says, "Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord." It says, "Keep looking carefully. least anyone of you." fall by bitterness, springing up cause trouble. Don't be a bitter person in the congregation of the saints. Many people are so bitter in our day and age, easily, and they don't don't hold the bitterness to themselves. They want to pollute and defile the body. Friends, it is a device of the devil. The devil will not come in. When the devil wants to attack a church, the devil will not come in and sit down physically unless he really means business. What he will do? He said, we'll catch the heart of somebody that can easily be aggrieved and look for anything from the littlest child in the church to the eldest, from the usher to the pastor. Most of the time, the pastor, to be quite frank. I think 80% of the time is the pastor. (laughs) And he will just find something and the devil will say, "You, you know, he was talking about you. Do you know he's doing this, he's doing that? Do you know that mm, that money you gave the other time, do you know mm, mm, that, they, mm, these people? Mm. And the person buys that lie. Instead of going to the person that they want to check with, either the pastor or whoever, or the leader of the unit, whatever it is, instead of going, they start to let it grow. The Bible says it is a root of bitterness. And then when it starts to spring up, it becomes trouble, and then they now start to use it to talk to others. You start to say, ah, do you know this is... Now they start to talk categorically on things that they are not sure or they have not verified. They start to talk categorically. They start to say, this is it, this is it. And many weak minds will follow them, believe them, and this has led to church split. not once, not twice, not many times. The same strategy, but believers don't learn. If you have a beef with anybody at any time, Like you would in a family. Does your son just walk out from the house because he he was not happy that you did not give him something or you did not do something? No, he comes to ask you. He comes to challenge you. He comes to say, Dad, you said you were going to do this. What happened? It hasn't been done. Then you talk about it. We don't walk away and cause bitterness to to defile many. I was listening to John MacArthur a couple of years ago and he shared a very sad tale. This is a man who's been in ministry over 50 years now, pastoring week in, week out. He said at a time when the church was 18 years old, suddenly somebody took a lie, one lie that was unverified, that was completely false. And I don't know how big the church was, maybe there were 2,000 that time or something, because I'm sure, I'm, I'm hoping there were at least over 1,000. He said 400 people left the church. And he said he was giving that story about 22 years later, year 40. He said he watched... As many of those people that he could find, that he cries many times, that some of them managed to come back, but that some of those people no longer went to any other church. And he felt to himself, he learned a lesson that just because of the bitterness in the heart of one person. Now, I'm not saying people must be in one church forever. But we must understand that if people will have to leave church out of bitterness, they are not going in the right, the right way. They are not leaving the brethren the right way. The body of Christ must put an end to, to this. There is no pastor I've worked with. I've had disagreements with pastors. I've had disagreements with people I've worked with. It's not a problem. But we sit down and talk about it man to man. And we are still talking today. When you leave a place and you cannot talk with the people, check it. If they are true children of God. Who are you? Who are you? Why do you think you are the perfect person that that everybody must worship all over the land? No church is good enough for you. You fight here, fight that one, fight there. Two years, there. one, One year, there. One month, there. Who are you? These are demonic things and you are buying a lie of the devil. This wickedness must stop. People must stay. If God is moving you on, let it be a blessing. The church will celebrate you. The church. Will, I, when I was leaving my former church, they celebrated me. They gave me things. They prayed for me. I know some people were not happy, but that was not the important thing. But I left with glory. I left with prayers. You don't just do things because you are bitter. If you are bitter, that is not the time to live. That is the time to sort out things and talk with the people that need. Because at times, it is not not founded. In years of ministry, I've heard many times things said about me that I will hear from third party to fourth party. And at times, I'll be wondering if they're talking about somebody else. I've learned to always ignore those things anyway because they are distractions, as I've said. We have a spiritual responsibility to maintain spiritual vitality. To strengthen the body. I talked about strengthening your individual person by using your two hands. Strengthening your knee helps you to spread the gospel, not divide the gospel. The Bible says we shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your knee is what helps your, your feet to move. If your knee is not working, your feet, no matter how well beautified they are in the gospel, they can't move anywhere. It is your knee that propels your feet forward. So you strengthen it. That's why the Bible says strengthen the knee. So you strengthen the knee. Don't be an agent that puts a stall to the gospel, either in your own life or in the life of others. So you must continue to understand that what God expects of us is to keep spending individual... I can spend a lot of time on this because over the years, I have seen in many sectors, many countries, the same thing's happening, and I believe the body of Christ needs to be checking these things out. God's interest is that we grow, we multiply... God's interest is that we, we healthily develop new cultures, new, new communities that are serving God, and that is beautiful, but when it becomes that we are rancorous in one place and we are the people causing strife and causing bitterness to spread and polluting the mind of others, what we are doing is taking the assignment, assignment of Satan and doing it for him. May God not let us be in that number in the name of Jesus. So we must keep our vitality by ourselves. He said there will be people, when, when you allow that, people become fornicators and profane like Esau. What happens is that the word fornication there, we know what it means. It having a wrong kind of sexual affairs, either as a married person with a person that you are not married to or as somebody who is not married and they're having it. It is wrong. And what the Bible says is that it is out of profanity, out of instant gratification. The people that want to spread things are like fornicators, The people that like to just make things happen here and there and cause problems—they are like fornicators. They are profane people. Instant gratification to fulfill their flesh and just—and just you know, this is how I feel. I feel aggrieved, and so everything must go to pieces. That is the same spirit of fornication. That's what the Bible says there. He said, "For you know that afterward, if they are like Esau, he wanted to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance." May God not let us lose our place. You know something? As I said, God has a purpose for everyone every time. The Bible says time and chance happens to them all. Like the story of John MacArthur, if people are removed from where they ought to be for a particular point in time, it may lead to misery. I'm just sharing this by the grace of God. God has been helping us as a church. I, am not, I don't want anybody to think that I am speaking to anything or anybody. I, don't, I, just, felt, I just felt led to speak this way today. Because this is online and there could be somebody hearing my voice now. You are aggrieved. True, some things were done to you. True, there is a reason for you to be aggrieved. But you know something? Don't compliment the work that the devil is seeking to do. Go and have a discussion with whoever it is that you need to... We are one body. Go to the pastor of that church. Go to the leader of that group and say, I don't want to bring up a root of bitterness here. I am really aggrieved about this and I need it sorted out. And by the grace of God, with the wisdom of God, the Lord himself will bring a solution. And before you know it, you may find that some things were even misrepresented. It is important so that we don't be like Esau and lose our place. Number four, very quickly, number four, we must worship God as part of a glorious company. Verse 18 says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that may be burned with fire and to blackness and to tempests. That is where they used to go in a place called Mount Sinai. It used to be when they went there, there is fire, there is a lot of smoke and things. And uh, only Moses could go up and have a conversation with God. They used to be afraid. Even goats, the Bible says that even when goats came there, that they were destroyed and they they, they touched it, they were destroyed. He said, you have not come to that kind of place. In spiritual worship, verse 22, he said, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the physical Jerusalem. We don't go travel. I've been to Jerusalem by the grace of God, but we don't travel there to go and worship anymore. We don't need to. We are in all members of the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. He said to the innumerable company of angels. We must understand this. He calls it the general assembly of the Church of the firstborn, not a social club, not a people, not a gathering of people who just like to do things. He said, a gathering of the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven." The Bible says, if you believe in the Lord, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of of life. Every one of us as saints have our names written there, registered in heaven. And we are also registered with those that have gone ahead of us. They are the spirits of just men, made perfect, like I explained, about them being our cloud of witnesses. So we must worship God as part of this glorious company. Church is not just a place we go for the sake of it. Church is part of where we equip ourselves for running the race where we are able to learn and work with others to pray, to study the word, to do fellowship, to evangelize. Those four things must be running, that is what makes you run the race. Prayer, word of study, study of the word, Fellowship, exhorting one another, and evangelizing individually and together. Those four things help you. I can do how I can do you a teaching on how they help you to run, but that will be for another day. They help you to run. When you are not doing them, you will find yourself not running efficiently. You will find yourself running like a you know, there's a drudgery to it. The Bible says we have come to the general assembly of the church. Let us continue to treasure the church that God has given to us. When I talk about the church, I'm talking about the body of Christ. Wherever you are per time, don't just be a passive member of the church. Be active. Be active. If nothing is given to you to do, go and ask one of the leaders of your group or go and talk to the pastor. Say, Pastor, I need you to give me something to do in this church. I need you to get me more engaged. Help me. Go and ask. Go and ask because it will help you to grow. The Bible says we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. If you believe that he mediated the new covenant and it's to him we have come, you will not joke with fellowship. We have come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That is where we have come. That is what the church is. Every attempt to make the church invalid, make it a comedy house, make it a a place of mockery, the Lord will continue to frustrate off the earth in Jesus' name. These are demonic We don't pray for such churches. We pray for them to dry up. I mean, demonic churches that are set up by Satan, called any name that is called, but the whole agenda is to make a mockery of the real church and to make a mockery of that which God is doing. We decree their demise in the name of Jesus. As many churches that are desiring, whatever level they're in, to portray Christ and him crucified and telling our world that Jesus is coming again, may God continue to empower them. May God continue to supply them with more people. May God continue to supply them with resources in the name of Jesus. Because we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We don't go to pastors. We don't gather onto geos. We don't gather onto people who have been designated by Jesus himself. We don't gather onto them. They are only, coordinator of our, they are only coordinators of our gathering. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Number five. I will finish it. Don't worry. Number five, we must be godly. <laughs> we must keep developing godly relationships. Very quickly, let's go to Hebrews 13. Godly relationships in marriages and in general conduct. As I said, I'm just trying to skip through this thing so that we can see how we can live faithfully in Christ. He said, Let brotherly love continue. Hebrews 13:1. What is brotherly love? Love for your brother, love for your sister. This one that we don't understand that when we don't see our brother or sister and we don't ask about them, it's not brotherly love. These days, you, there are so many ways. You can text the person. You can, you can just check on them. Give them a ring. You can do anything. It's so simple. Just, just look around you. How, how are the people, especially through this pandemic, do you even take time to look at the people who are in the Zoom? Because they say you are not usher, you are not a protocol, so you don't even bother. Do you even take time? To look at the numbers. Who was there this week? Who was not there? You've not seen somebody for two weeks and is your brother, Is your sister. Have you checked on them? He said, let brotherly love continue. Verse four, he said, marriage is honorable. Make marriages honorable and the bed undefiled because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. There is a difference between fornicators and fornication. There's a difference between adulterers and adultery. A person can commit adultery and fornication as bad as it is and not encouraged one bit. So you get me clearly? A person can commit those things and ask God for repentance, ask God for forgiveness and repent, and they'll be clean and made whole again, and they continue their journey. So the Bible did not say God will judge fornication and adultery. There are two different things. God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Those who have decided that that's how they want to live. Even if they call the name of Jesus 10 times a day. They are fornicators. They are adulterers. Because we need to understand these things. Nobody is perfect. There are people who fall. Men, the Bible says that if a man looks at a woman lustfully. If every man will be honest with himself, there, there, there is one occasion that you did not like the way you looked at another woman. And if, you have never, if it has never happened to you, God help you. Thank God for you. But unless you want to be not, untruthful, it is a natural process. So before you give me spirituality, <laughs> it is a natural process. It is just given by God so that we can select, we can see the people we should marry and marry them. And after that, you have to discipline it. Because left of the flesh, he wants to keep looking at the next one, the next one, the next one. He's ready to. That's why in the olden days, people were having 30 wives and 40 wives. (laughs) Because everyone was looking as good. Come, this one I married too, this one I married too. Because it it is a state of the mind that we have to deal with. Now, that is, if somebody is living in adultery or fornication, that is a different thing. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So we must understand that living faithfully in Christ requires us not to allow a lifestyle of fornication and adultery. And if anybody has ever fallen in any one of those areas, I want you to know that you need to make your ways right with God and never in your life, determine in your life that you will not allow the things that made them happen again. You need to keep the right company and do the right things. This applies to every sin. And it it is when we make them a lifestyle that God said he would judge. So let us learn that, and understand it very well. He said, let your conduct be without covetousness. Always do without covetousness, friends. Covetousness is desiring what God has not given to you. It doesn't mean it's bad, but let God give it to you. When you are desiring it so bad, or what God is not, what God has not given to you because it should not be your own. Let me put it that way. Because there are certain things you may desire. God hasn't given you yet, for you desire it. That doesn't mean it's covetous. But when God is saying that that is not the thing for you, somebody else's property, somebody else's wife, somebody else's bag, somebody else's child, somebody else's husband, somebody else's job, somebody else's church, somebody else's thing, those are covetousness. The Bible says, let your conduct be without it. I am grateful by the grace of God, and this is not in any way being proud. By the grace of God, by his mercies, I'm grateful for everything God has given me. I thank God for my wife. Yesterday I looked at her and I said, Lord, I thank you for this woman. She is beautiful. She is strong. She loves me. She supports me. Do we not have this agreement? Oh, plenty, plenty times. But the love is there. It's real. And I'm grateful to God for her. I'm grateful to God for my children. I'm grateful to God for my jobs. I'm grateful to God for this church. I thank God for every member of the church. Do I not believe in the things that God has shown me that we will be much greater than this? I believe it, I receive it, I know we will walk into it, but for today, I am a thankful man. Every one member of this church is on my lips of thanksgiving every day because I am grateful I don't look at the man that, or the woman that we started seven years ago together and maybe they are counting a thousand people. I don't know any like that, but I'm just saying. I don't look at those people and say, ah, what is my own case? Why are we not? No, 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 no. I just thank God for everybody because we are in a race that we are running by ourselves in the agenda of God. When you do your life without covetousness, you can run your race so easily. If you want to sleep and wake up well and be a person that can achieve much and multitask, let me tell you the truth. Do without covetousness. Do without covetousness. Covetousness has put many people in trouble. They have to go and live in a, an area because somebody moved there. They have to buy a certain kind of thing because somebody bought it. They have to go to a certain kind of place for their own holiday because somebody went there. Huh. You better don't kid. You stay with what God has given you. If your holiday is to go to travel lodge... Travel Lodge, go and enjoy your room in Travel Lodge for two days. Believe me, keep enjoying it. One day, you will not be in Travel Lodge. You will go further. But because somebody said, "Ah, I've just just been out now and I'm just coming back from Las Vegas. And you say, ah, Las Vegas. Man, I must go to Las Vegas. What what do you know they are doing in Las Vegas? (laughs) And then you go and look for thousands of pounds to go to Las Vegas. When Travel Lodge is waiting for 40 pounds, (laughs) Friends, don't be covetous. You will enjoy your life. There is nothing that God cannot give to you in due time. Whatever you need to enjoy in this life, you will enjoy it in due time. Just wait on God. Go steadily with God. When you see people living at certain level, they did not always start like that. In many cases, they did not. They started and they allowed God to help them so life is free of pressures and troubles. Finally, I don't have much time, I've gone over time a little. Finally, Hebrews 13, verse 7. This is, we must regard spiritual leadership and take personal responsibility. He said, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. The message I've preached today is five messages in one, in fact, six messages in one. So please, just bear with me. But I will be talking through in depth throughout the week. So if you can join, please join. Early morning prayer, midweek service, please join. And uh, he said, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith to follow. We have come to a place in the body of Christ today that we no longer want to have spiritual leadership. Yeah, leadership have failed many times. Leadership have gone crazy many times. And that's true. But it doesn't change the word of God. Where leadership is genuine and sincere, God expects genuine and sincere commitment. Where leadership is pure, transparent, clear, God expects the same degree of loyalty, purity, transparency, consistency, nothing more. He said, remember those who rule over you. He said, when you follow, you consider the outcome of their conduct. Verse 6 says, because Jesus Christ that was with them before is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be carried about, verse 9, with the various strange doctrines. That's your responsibility. Today, everything is on the net. Everybody is everywhere. It's easy to access anything. Don't be carried about by strange doctrines. Whatever you cannot see, anybody prove properly from the word of God, not twisted. Don't follow it. It's a bad doctrine. There is no new revelation outside the word of God. Any so-called new revelation is a lie. Do I mean that we don't gain more understanding of the word? Oh, plenty to gain. But anything that somebody says is an addition, that I, you won't find it in the Bible, but God told me it's a lie, a lie from the pit of hell. Don't be carried about. They are called strange doctrines. They are foreign doctrines. Say, for it is good that your heart be established by grace, not with foods which have profited those, those people who are doing that are doing it for profit. Don't follow their lies. And verse 17, I'll close on that, I will show you. He said, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. The pastor that is calling you to check on you is not because he's looking for members, sincerely. Not because he's looking for members. Not because he needs anything from you. A sincere pastor will not call you because he needs anything from you. He's only watching out for your soul. Don't say, ah, this pastor, every time he takes me, what is he looking for, hey. the man sincerely is looking for your soul, looking out for your soul. If I've never called you to beg you for anything, please, and I'm not bragging, I'm just giving you a clear example. If I've not called you to beg you and say, please, please, give me something, give me something, whatever that thing is, please, when I call you, understand, I'm just watching out for your soul by the grace of God. Because I must give account. That's what the Bible says. I must give account. They don't just call you pastor something for the sake of it. You must give account. You must give account. You are not the leader of that group for the sake of it. You must give account. He said, let them, allow them to do it with joy and not with grief. That is what we are going to take our communion on today. That God should give us the grace to, to make others work in joy. Either the leadership or the people we work with. He said, let them do it with joy and not with grief. For that will be unprofitable to you. Where you make the people around you, especially your leaders, walk with grief. It is not their actions that will give you that will make you make it unprofitable. It is God Himself. So we do our work to make it easier. When I served under other pastors, I, I threw myself to their service. I can give you their phone numbers, call them. If they gave me an assignment, I did it to the best of my ability. I never held back to say, hey, I'll just do it like this when I'm convinced. No, 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 I did it. I even asked them, do you want me to do this if I feel that more can be done? They'll say, go ahead. i go and do more. The same way my wife will commit. We make it easy for the people. We make it easy for the leaders. We make it easy for them to, to do their work. When they say, I have pastors who will call me and say, Brother Dave, you know, I really feel tired this weekend. I must confess, we've had a long week. Can you preach for me? And maybe Saturday afternoon. Can you please preach for me tomorrow? I will be in the service. But please, just preach for me. I don't say, eh, I have to, I'm not a pastor. And they're just telling me on Saturday. <laughs> no. I say, okay, God bless you. Please take your rest. If you think you even need to stay at home, feel free. But if you want to come along, that's fine. Then I go pray. I prepare as if it is the last assignment I will do. I have videos, if you think I'm joking, I have videos of churches that I have preached before now by the grace of God. I am not saying it for this. So I cannot be telling you to do what I have not done and I'm not doing. That's my point. It will be unprofitable to you. Give the leaders joy, not grief. We have too many Christians all over the place giving their leaders grief every day. There was a time in this church, every Sunday, every Sunday after service, I must settle one chorale or the other. I just noticed it was a trend for many months. This was many years ago. Every Sunday, as I said, get to my office like this, I'm waiting for the door to open and to hear the next complaint. And it usually was orchestrated by one or two people. I won't mention their name, so you are you addressed. Are, you are <laughs> yeah, this one happened, oh, kitchen, that one happened. That Every Sunday. So, and then some of those people left and all that after some time. Then I, I will get to my office after service and I'll find myself almost starting to my afternoon nap, right in my office. I said, God, you mean this work can be this enjoyable and you did not start like this for me? He said, I wanted to show you because if I start you like this, if you come and across those kind of things later, you will bust. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. We are thankful. We are thankful. We are thankful. We say to you be the glory. You have been good to us. You have been kind to us. Lord, we have spent so much time today looking at how we can live faithfully. We cannot do it without you. Everybody, let us pray together for a recommitment to the Lord before we break bread. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Say it with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you today to yield my life and rededicate my life. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from unrighteousness. From today, I am born again set free. And let my life take a new order. Let my life take a new order in the direction of holiness. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it. And he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. He said, drink ye all of it. Whatever you have prepared as an emblem, I bless it in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may it deliver to you the great promises of Christ. In the new covenant, in Jesus' name, amen. The power of the Lord continue to be upon you. The Bible says God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good. You will go about doing good. You will go about attaining higher. You will go about achieving more. The Spirit of the Lord will continue to propel you further. You will not buy error. You will not fall into error. You will not be carried away by strange doctrines. In the name of Jesus, the Lord Jehovah, whom you serve, will be your reward. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.